internet friends and welcome back to love hate relationship an opinionated podcast for opinionated people i'm andy bowell and i'm alex ruiz and as always we are here to brighten your day anger your soul and tell you how to live your lives in that order and andy i always start this by being all like let me begin a topic so that we can douchebag buffer properly but fuck you a little bit you come up with a topic for the douchebag buffer i I'm always improvising this, and you took more improv classes than I did. <laughs> well, okay. First of all, I didn't know you felt like that was solely on your shoulders. I, I think I... Yes, and me, bitch. <laughs> uh, let's see. That's quite a, uh, that's quite a salami you're making there, sir. No, I'm not going to do that. I, I've, I've done actual improv on the radio it was college radio back when like my real improv group late night television existed and i just feel like that is not the way it works i didn't think you could do vocal improvisation until i started listening to my brother my brother and me and I mean, the McElroys are geniuses in that regard. It also helps that they, you know, literally grew up together and had their entire lives to bounce that sort of behavior off one another. Um, Sure. I'm listening to, I'm, I'm hearing ads for a lot of podcasts that are always like trying to replicate the same thing. It seems like a lot of d-list celebrities and comedians are just trying to hop onto this thing before the bubble bursts and i really like i don't know it still doesn't jive with me a purely improvisational comedy podcast but i guess that's where one could say that i'm just not creative or funny enough i would refute that but i could see why someone would say that Well, I know, like, Kevin Pollack apparently has one yeah. where he gets a bunch of improv people on, and I've never listened to it, but I have legitimately heard pretty good things about that one. But also, improv is such a skill that, like, needs honing, and you have to suck at improv for a very long time before you're any good at it. Take it from me as someone who sucked at improv for a very long time, and I don't think ever got good at it because I was just like, I was better at it than some of the people I knew, but I don't think I was ever great. I think I just, I had good rhythm, and if you have good rhythm, that'll get you decently far, but I never was like truly good at it. I think more than anything, it takes practice and it takes practice with the same amount of people you know that improv group i was a part of we were meeting once or twice a week in college just to like work on the craft and got to the point where we figured out okay like you are clearly the chris farley of this group so we know that no matter what you do you're going to be able to make it funny and just figuring out like the inner dynamics. I'll, I'll, I remember one show at a coffee shop where it was just a perfect, like three structure setup about some operating room joke where we were, we, we kept talking about a, a problem with somebody's intestines and needing all this weird medical stuff to solve the problem. And I ended it with, but doctor, how's this going to help with the brain surgery? And it went over, Absolutely terrifically. That was like the highlight of the A to C to D group telepathy 
of my improv career. I will say, like, I thought I got pretty good at improv, but one thing that always terrified me was musical improv. Like the idea of, okay, we're going to make up a song or I'm going to play my guitar and it's going to dictate the mood of the piece. Like that is a straight up skill. If you can do that more than just being able to be quick on your feet and on the spot and figure something out. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to ask possibly the dumbest question I've ever asked you in, in the history of our relationship, Andrew. I'm excited. You ever... You ever look into freestyle hip hop? <laughs> um, no, not really, not myself. But okay. but that is musical improv, isn't it? No, I mean it is. I I bring it up because that was something that interested me very briefly. Again, a thing I was never terribly good at. Like honestly, I it is it is a point of. <laughs> It is a weird little point of pride to me that um, when we were in high school, your your our mutual acquaintance Jamie, who did tr- fancy himself a bit of a rapper, he actually like was in a rap group in high school and practiced it. I did beat him in a battle rap once, <laughs> and I was like, "Cool, I I am a high school senior who just beat another high school senior in a battle rap." I'm tapping out now. I'm good. This is as good as my battle rap career will ever be because I'm not a good rapper and I am not a good freestyler. I'm a good writer, but I am not like I've never been a freestyler to any degree. But when I tried to work on it, I was like, I was just this good. I could not keep it up, though. Like it is you're right. It's an absolute skill. It takes a lot of dexterity and comfort, like rhythmically, musically, Um I did used to improvise slam poems, getting back on the topic of like how you did improv and I did performance poetry. And that was always a lot of, there is a video and my best friend, um, Nick, he, I remember he recorded this one like improvised poetry night that I was a part of. And I did a poem where it was like you get like three words from the audience and you have to put the three words into like a three minute piece. Hmm. And I did an entire persona poem as Tails from (laughs) Sonic the Hedgehog as a born again Christian shaming the people who used to play his games. Jesus. And I remember, like, I did this, and I improvised this whole thing, and I had some line about how you can't treat Mountain Dew like holy water. Which made the entire place explode. And afterwards, a friend, like a good friend of mine, came up. He's like, Don't bullshit me. You wrote that ahead of time, didn't you? Like, and I was like, No, honestly, I just, I had that idea forever ago. It was scribbled in a notebook, but I hadn't, like, actually written the poem. Um, And I'm, I've been on Nick for years to, like, track down that video. God only knows where it is. He doesn't even live in the same house anymore. He's moved two or three times since then, but. Yeah, no, I'm just like, ah, if I could only get my hands on that, sure. that would have been terrific. <laughs> Speaking of things that are lost, um, you know, I was I was on a breakfast date with my wife this morning and we got talking about like the first time we met so-and-so, like just the, talking about the first time we met certain friends and we got talking about MySpace. And I don't know about you, 
but like my myspace is just lost to the sands of time because i don't remember even the email i set up that account with i don't remember any password and my account was like privatized before i um you know, jump made the jump to Facebook. And I'm sure at the time I like, didn't even think about it and was like, Oh, I'll do both for a little bit. And then I was like, no, I'm doing Facebook. Now there is such a personal gossip treasure trove of like interactions with my wife when we had crushes on each other and just so many other friends that are just gone. And it routinely upsets me that I will never have access to this account again. I have found my MySpace. Like, it is still up. Nothing has happened with it in, like, oh, same, 12 yeah. years. I I can't log into it, just like you. The account, the email address I used, I had it with it, uh, has closed due to inactivity. So I have no way of accessing it whatsoever. Um, although, you know, I read that, like, wasn't there a giant MySpace, Purge. like... giant erasure yeah and i haven't checked to see since then if my myspace is still up i kind of hope it's not because if i had the option i would totally delete it but i'm looking at it right now (sighs) apparently my account is still active but it has been restricted and only confirmed like friends can make it so it is it is just it is just gone like i do not have the the depth of knowledge to even dig this thing up it is just this this taunting thing in the back of my mind of oh we've got all your embarrassing messages to your now wife that you might want to see and cringe over but you're never going to go you're never going to be able to Uh, is it the worst thing in the grand scheme of life (laughs) now i just i've been trying to delete my tumblr like i've been trying to i've been, i've wanted that one deleted forever and it's just it's been it's been tricky apparently you can't delete a tumblr from a phone so you'd have to actually like go into the site and huh. do it and uh but yeah right that's lazy. a degree of care and more than you choose to exert on this i get it yeah and then for my space i'm just like what, so that y'all can see how much I was really into Marilyn Manson in 2007? Because <laughs> I was. And to be fair, like, the last time I listened to Antichrist Superstar was, like, last year. So, I am still this person right. in a lot of ways. I don't know. I, I, that is such a, like, personal currency um, of, like, hyper-specific nostalgia that i know i enjoy it but in the grand scheme of things like it's truly gone forever and also i think this means no one else could find it if they wanted to either so it's just nah it's like if i ever had a an old like live journal account or something which i didn't but it would also be just lost to the sands of time we're not that interesting (laughs) andy that's how dare you i think you're plenty interesting yeah but like what was your MySpace URL? <laughs> Judas the Phantom. <laughs> and I only know this because I just looked it up a second ago, so. Ew. For a long time, my um, Tumblr handle was cigarettes and coffee because I was real into American Idiot and wanted to be ironic, so. Okay, so mine was literally insert ironic username. Nice. 
that was literally my MySpace. Like, that was the URL. Uh, I'm Googling it now, and I'm not finding it, which makes me think maybe it was purged. And I am (laughs) super okay with that. Absolutely delighted with that. Like, get rid of it. I don't want it. Actually, just logged into my Tumblr and deleted it. So, guys, I don't have a Tumblr anymore. Like, live as of this show, I no longer have a Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. This is finally what inspired you. How do I? (laughs) Hey, the only reason I haven't gotten rid of Facebook is because, honestly, I've got a bunch of, like, overseas family, and it's the only way I can keep tabs on them. Sure. Also, I don't want them on my Twitter, so. Yeah, I understand. Which I announced at the end of every one of these episodes, so it's really their fault. They could have been following me on Twitter this whole time. Yeah. But you know what? They don't listen to the podcast, so Mm. it's their own fault. They're missing out. Well, so... Do you think we scared the douchebags away? Yeah, 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 we did. Um, Yeah, so let's... Speaking of um, the self-indulgence that comes with uh, life online, Andy, shall we start our episode? (laughs) Yeah, let's get into the podcast. So, hi, you're still in love-hate relationship. Thanks for sticking around, everybody. And um, on every episode, one of us talks about something that we love. The other one then talks about something we hate. And we take your relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. Uh, This time, I've got the love. And I'm actually kind of excited to get talking about it. Me too. This is... This isn't this is not quite new territory, but it's like new-ish territory, especially for you. Right. So, I'm I'm intrigued to see where you take it. By all means, my friend. So it's been a minute since we had a food topic on the show. Um, I'm mm. looking in my notes. I wrote it's been a minute since we had a good topic. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which is patently untrue. That was a typo on my part for sure. Thanks, homie. <laughs> No, we haven't, we haven't like talked about straight up food. I think since you talked about your love of burritos mm-hmm. and like we, we, it's one thing that is kind of essential to our lives and we don't really talk about as much this time, but without any further uh, build up, I want to talk today about why I love what is honestly my favorite food pizza. Okay. Let's and, get started. Yeah, I think there are some key similarities to why I love pizza and why you love burritos, and we'll get into that. Um, but first, there's a like the history of pizza is something I never really thought about. I think like a lot of uh, ignorant American people, I just kind of assumed, oh yeah, it's what they eat in that country. That country being Italy. And it wasn't until this episode that I like truly like, okay, what is the history of pizza? And there was a lot that actually surprised me. So I kind of want to get into that a little bit. Okay. Um, Educate me. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I think a lot of people kind of knew that like pizza is a bigger deal in America than it is in Italy. That doesn't seem like a huge surprising fact, but I did not know truly how young the food as it were is um you know flatbreads which you could argue a pizza basically is have been around for as long as we've been grinding wheat to make bread like like multiple countries around the world multiple cultures like 
Flatbreads are a perfectly fine established thing. But pizza, as we know it, um, the general consensus is that it was actually invented in 1889 by a baker named Raffaele Esposito and was like a special dish for the visiting Queen Margarita, hence the name Pizza Margarita. Uh, the story, as I've read, is that the guy made like three different kind of savory pie dishes and on one of which he decorated it with red tomatoes, green basil and white mozzarella cheese to represent the Italian flag. And she saw that and was like, yes, this is the best thing here. I want to eat it. And the pizza was born. And like Flawless just. Logic. Yeah, right. The fact that I'm sitting here being like, OK, so it's do 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 like less than 300 years old. Like you could have told me that they were having pizza in the 1400s and I would have believed you without a second thought. You could have told me that like, yeah, when Da Vinci in, in between making sketches for tanks and airplanes and all sorts of crazy shit, he was running down to the pizzeria and having a break. I would have just completely accepted it, but not true. Pizza is younger than America, which is shocking to me. Hmm. I have to say, I did not know that. Um, right? I have always heard that pizza was a bigger deal here than it was in Italy. Like, that is something that I've always understood. I've always heard in Italy it's kind of a, like, uh, whatever the fuck, who cares kind of dish. <laughs> like, like it's, it's like the, um, it's like chicken soup. It's like, you can eat it. It's there. It's around. People have it, especially people who, like, maybe don't have... People aren't, who aren't, like, making gourmet shit and are just like, eh, sh bread, sauce, cheese. Okay, we're good. Like, that's fine. That's your lunch tomorrow, Mario. That's always been my understanding, but... Eh? And apparently I, I that's, that's kind of how it started out. Like, despite the fact that this started out as, like, a fancy dish fit for a queen, the, the common history is that it very quickly became, like the thing the common Italian could eat on the go. Like if you're some poor commoner who lives in a one bedroom apartment and works from dawn till dusk, like you could run out, grab a piece of pizza, fold it in half and eat it on your way to work. And that was the sustainable relatively cheap thing. If, if you didn't want to sit there and set up like a whole spread and the upper crust of Italian society like was, was out there writing articles about how pizza was this shitty common food and really not worth your time, which yeah. makes it fitting that like in the turn of that century, pizza came to America through immigration. You know, the first American pizzeria was made in 1905. So that's like, mm -hmm what 28 years or 18 years between the invention of the pizza and the first American pizzeria. Sure. First American pizzeria was created in 1905 in New York. And, and like that is when New York style pizza was born because again, it's like, the okay, we can make this thing big as hell. You fold it in half. It fills you up and it's cheap. Perfect. Yeah. Like in, in New York city, 
When I would visit New York City when I was in graduate school, I would usually count on getting pizza just while I was walking around. A, because New York-style pizza is delicious and amazing. And B, it's like the only thing in New York you can get where you can get like a full meal for a buck 35. Exactly. Still, like today, I can walk into a like any random ass little slot in in Manhattan and just be like, yo, give me a slice of pizza that's bigger than my face. Here's two dollars. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> you know, this wasn't in my notes, but there's something beautiful to that, I think. The like it is a it is a perfect food in the sense of like the great white shark new york style pizza has not changed since it like first came to be i know i know i'm misusing the term but i would dare to call it a superfood for that reason (laughs) i'm gonna remember that the next time someone tries to tell me about acai absolutely I understand how you feel about acai. That's wonderful. I understand how you feel about blueberries or about quinoa. But have you tried Gino's West's large (laughs) cheese? Absolutely. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting here advocating it should count as a vegetable and be served uh, in every school in America. You can wipe it with a napkin and then see through the napkin. (laughs) Uh, so New York style pizza, uh, was essentially invented in 1905. At some point it spread into Chicago by 1930 and the Chicago deep dish pie was created thus like creating maybe the greatest food rivalry ever. Like I'm, I'm racking my brain about like anything that comes close to the arguments people would get in about New York versus Chicago style pizza limiting into a specific food group. Like there's nobody sitting here arguing the banana split versus a regular Sunday or I, I can't think of anything. So you get Chicago style in 1930. And then like, here's just another thing I didn't realize. Like, all of the main pizza chains kind of sprouted up in the same time, right around the late 1950s. Um, Mm -hmm. You had Pizza Hut start in Kansas of all places in 1958, Little Caesars in 1959, and then Domino's in 1960. So just, you know, all of these fast food entrepreneurs kind of just had a brainchild. I guess, I guess, a year is enough time to look at a franchise and go, yes, I will do the same thing only slightly differently. In fairness, that's also around the time that a lot of the like fast food burger franchises started. Yes. I think like McDonald's Absolutely. started a few years before that Burger King, a little after that Wendy's not long after like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was just the time for fast food to become a thing like chain sure. fast food. No, absolutely. And like, I don't know, it feels weird to, I guess I can't really imagine these chains before them. Like Pizza Hut doesn't feel like a thing we had before World War II or anything. (laughs) 
Sure. <laughs> like, I guess I never thought about it one way or the other, but yeah, next time you're eating Domino's, just reflect on like your dad is older than Domino's as a franchise in itself. I don't mean you specifically, but I'm no, assuming my, the my dad, dad, my dad is absolutely older than all of these. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> um, 100%. And then real yeah, quick, I real quick. I have to ask um, of the big three, because fuck Papa John's and it's like racist, sugary sauce bullshit. Yes. Um, guys, there is so much sugar in Papa John's pizza. If it didn't come with the garlic butter, it would not be worth it. And like, there is so much racism inside Papa John himself that. that yeah, racism aside, there is so <laughs> much sugar in this sauce. November 2019, Schnatter claimed in an interview with Kentucky's WDRB that he ate 40 pizzas in 30 days in an attempt to prove a point. This pizza is practically inedible without the garlic dipping sauce. The garlic dipping sauce is the draw. It's like going to a Red Lobster and not getting Cheddar Bay biscuits if you get Papa John's and you don't get the garlic butter sauce. Not worth it. Stick with one of the others. Okay, of the major three, Andy, Pizza Hut, Little Caesars, Domino's, who's your go-to? Um, It's a pretty even tie between Pizza Hut and Domino's. I think between the two, I lean Domino's more, but I have Pizza Hut more because it is nearer to me. My dad worked as a pizza delivery guy in college and, you know, was eating Domino's like every other night of the week in college and got so sick of it that it was the pizza that we did not get. So it became like this greasy, salty delicacy to me to be able to get (laughs) like a stuffed crust pepperoni pizza from Domino's. Like, "Mm, that's the perfect one right there. I know you have a strong opinion on your answer. (laughs) I love Little Caesars. I grew up on Little Caesars when I was a broke ass, like middle school, high school kid uh, that like I would go and split like a Little Caesars pizza with my friends. Like I love me some Little Caesars. I have deep abiding love for Little Caesars. Plus the CEO paid Rosa Parks rent for like the last several years of her life. So that's always nice. That's always a nice thing to add on. He did. I will he also owned the Detroit Red Wings. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he was a good person because he's a CEO of a major multinational corporation. But right. Like, but he did this one thing. Yeah, he did. He did a couple things that I'm. He, he, he did something I'm cool with. Um, that said, I have consistently said that I love Little Caesars because it's so cheap and because I have this m- memory attachment to it. The best of them. The best one is Domino's. Yeah, I would have to. And I will. Yeah, they have the best crust. They have the best cheese to sauce ratio. They do cost a little bit more than Little Caesars, but for usually a little less pizza, like a Little Caesars $5 pizza is bigger than a Domino's $7 pizza. Yeah. So, you know, if if you're buying the pizza to feed, you know, a party of like 20 people... You make your own decisions, whereas if you're, like, buying something for just you or just you and a partner or just, like, a small, close evening, you know, maybe you want to shell out a little bit more for the quality of the Domino's. But I am a firm believer that I love Little Caesars, Domino's is better, and Pizza Hut is... I have never not been disappointed with Pizza Hut. Right. The thing... If so, if somebody buys it for me, like if I'm at a party and there's Pizza Hut, I'm not gonna complain. It's free pizza, but like 
I'm never going to go out of my way for Pizza Hut, you know? The the draw for Pizza Hut for me really is I feel like they will get the most extra stuff. Like if I'm going to Pizza Hut, I'm getting wings and or I'm getting like the cheese bread and and Domino's and Little Caesars has all of that, but I feel like like where Pizza Hut really pulls out the win is in the stuff that you can get along with your pizza besides the pizza in and of itself. Um, it's, it's the Thanksgiving dinner of pizzas. Yeah. Like the pizza itself is Turkey, which is fine. Turkey is fine. If you do it right, it can be better than fine, but generally speaking, it's fine, but you're there for the sides. Yeah. So history lesson aside, like, (laughs) Pizza is my favorite food because, I mean, it's friggin' pizza. Like, it is the one of the single most popular foods in America, if not the world period. I guess really not the world period. Uh, but, I mean, I'm sitting yeah, there being not. like, I know for a fact you can get pizza in the UK. You can get pizza in Italy. They just look at you funny. You can get pizza in Japan or um, China. Apparently, like the big thing, Pizza Hut is, from an economic standpoint, the largest uh, pizza chain in the world. And part of that is because they opened a thousand locations in China in like the last decade or so. So like, it's out there. But like... I wanted to bring this to burritos because I figured this is the second favorite food. This is my favorite food. It's only right to compare it to yours. And I, I think you have an argument about the portability and the like tactical way you can eat a burrito. I'm specifically thinking about your road trip where you had a sack of them, (laughs) but I would say like, and especially as you go into more and more mom and pop places or you widen the amount of pizza restaurants you're talking about, pizzas are just as customizable as your average burrito. You can get damn near anything from nothing to Hawaiian with arugula on the side. Like, it is just as customizable. It is again, we, we talked about like it started as the poor person food that you could eat on the go. You know, you fold a slice in half and you're on your merry way. Um, Mm -hmm. and the thing that I would posit, you know, I cite the golden rule. Pizza is like sex. Even when it's not great, it's still pretty good. Pizza delivery. I got an extra large sausage just for you. For the 17th time, I didn't order any pizza. And I got to ask you a, a question I don't think we talked about. Have you ever eaten a cold burrito? Yes. Okay. I, I'm sitting here like... I can eat damn near anything cold. I can eat leftover Kobe cold. I can eat soup cold. I don't know if I could eat a burrito cold. Admittedly, pizza is better cold. Yes, I will agree with that. Um, burritos, I've had burritos cold. Again, when you're traveling with a sack of burritos on a road trip, you're not going to stop for a microwave. Right, I kind of wondered about that. Yeah, but no, I mean, like, I don't like to, I, I don't think I'd pull it out of the refrigerator and eat it cold, cold the way I would a pizza, but I can eat a room temperature burrito without any problem. Okay. But no, I, I get where you're coming from. To give your international perspective an idea, um, I can only, I can speak to Colombia, and I will say pizza is a thing in Colombia, 
and it is not as big a thing as it is here. Sure. Here, I, I would say pizza in Colombia is about on the same tier of popularity as, like, Thai or Indian food. It's, like, a thing. You can go to most... If you go to a metropolitan area, you will absolutely have a, several options. Um, if you go to a non-metropolitan area, you will probably have, like... The place in town where you can pick up Thai food, you you will have the place in the small town where there's like where you can get pizza. It is not considered super weird, but it's not like part of the zeitgeist. Whereas pizza in the U.S. is a zeitgeist food. Yeah, I would agree with that absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's there. It's not again. It's it's not super popular, but it's there and it's reliable and it certainly had there are pizza huts in Colombia. i have seen them we saw a pizza hut in panama that we drove by once like it's around it is there yeah we didn't stop at it because again it's pizza hut <laughs> sure if it was the little caesars you would have had to out of obligation <laughs> yeah sure five dollars and a panamanian little caesars that's actually that sounds like a good way to score heroin never mind yeah <laughs> I was going to say that sounds like a, a a great indie band, but Panamanian Pizza Hut, like, I'd listen to them. Sounds like mathcore, Andy. Mm. It kind of <laughs> does, don't it? Uh, it sounds like a Dance Gavin dance song, actually. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so just a couple, like a, a, a few final points. Um, I didn't know this, but just in my research, apparently California Pizza Kitchen uh, started as a concentrated effort to bring pizza back to its quote unquote more European late 1800s style. And that's just funny to me because like California Pizza Kitchen is the place I go if I want to get literally any damn thing on a pizza, but I don't hate myself and I'm not going into a CeCe's. CeCe's oh, Pizza is CeCe's. where I go if I hate myself. <laughs> I I've I've been to a few CCs. I have been to a few CCs. I'm with you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Um. So just it, you know, it, again, it speaks to the customability, and we've only talked about chains. We haven't even talked about how like there is no th- wherever you are, listener. If you're in America and not in like Montana, like I guarantee you, there is probably at least two or three local mom and pop pizza joints within driving distance of you it it really is like one of the most popular foods in the country and i don't think anybody could have an argument with that but talking about this and and thinking about my favorite food it it got me thinking about how like nobody outside of mike pence is sitting there saying oh yes my favorite food is cordon bleu my favorite food is foie gras like, no, people's favorite foods, especially if they're like a real person, is burritos, pizza, maybe sushi, like maybe macaroni and cheese. And specifically talking about pizza and burritos, like it's it's this typically down to earth, salty, customizable little bit of goodness. And I, I just... I'm not quite sure what there is to that, but I feel like there's something to that, that we, we tend to lean on the comfort foods 
when it comes to us to actually pick, okay, what is your favorite food? I will say I just Googled it. Mike Pence says his favorite food is bacon. So, I mean, that's just the skin of young children that somebody tells him is bacon, I'm sure. So, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Jesus Christ, Andy. I'm always the one who goes blue. And here you are. Uh, There's not enough time for all the insults I have about fucking Mike Pence. Mm, Sweetie. Oh, okay. This is your love. This is this is you talking about pizza. So bring it, bring yes. it back to that bring salty, it, cheesy it, oh, joy. Oh, pepperoni. Oh, bacon in the crust. Oh, <laughs> bacon in the. Andy, Andy, Andy. You know, it was Little our Caesars meat. that did that for a while. It was like, okay, we're gonna line our pizza with bacon. Have at it, and boy, did I have at it. Are you meat eaters? Okay. Are you guys okay? <laughs> Do you need me to call someone? Do I need to talk about which one of us has had a bacon shake from Denny's? That was a bet. <laughs> and that was before I was vegetarian. Fair enough. That so, was disgusting. Indeed. So speaking, I think it's funny because you know we didn't really talk about our topics beforehand. We just kind of threw them at each other. Um, so speaking of pizza, if you eat a lot of pizza, like I do, you probably aren't the most fit person. Oh my God. (laughs) But maybe if you eat a lot of pizza, it's because you need the carbs and the calories to help with your CrossFit regimen. And Alex, I I hear you're talking about that today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what? Thank you for that incredibly awkward transition. I would call it cheesy, but I'm choosing not to hate myself today. Aww. I love you. Um, yeah, okay. So you all read the title, as we like to say. So it has been a minute since I did one of these, um, I don't particularly give a shit about this thing, but the hate it gets is stupid top kind of topic. Uh, I did it, I did it way back when, like, I think it was like episode two or three. It was episode two. Okay, yeah, where I talked about people hating on Nickelback and how I'm like, I don't really give a shit about Nickelback, but the hate they give sounds, or the hate they get sounds lazy and memed and dumb and people should feel bad for it. So I thought I would bring that energy back. Uh, This is episode 42, so 40 episodes later. Uh, to talk about CrossFit hate. So, as per usual, Andy, um, I like to open with a question. And I don't know if you looked over my notes or not. I mentioned that you um, were more than entitled to skip over certain parts, depending on how you wanted to answer this question. But I just want you to tell me in brief everything that you actually know, like properly know about CrossFit. Not the people who do it or any stereotypes about it, but what you know about the actual activity. Okay, I always in my head kind of assert it to P90X. It is a intense workout and it is meant to be intense. It is meant to be like more work in less time than 
just about anybody could get at say the gym just doing their cardio and then going on the weight machines it is like part of my answer was baked in that it was like it it's almost become like a fad workout idea Mm. um but just specifically like it is a it is it is the most intense workout you're going to get. It is you pushing yourself to the limit. It The people who tend to teach it and do it enthusiastically get super duper ripped. And it's just, it's, it's like, Hey, do you want hard mode for your workout? You do. And you want to be out with other people and not in the privacy of your own gym. Okay. Come on down to the CrossFit place. There's like three of them in your town and they're all three years young or they've, they've all been there for no more than three years. Mm. Okay. I, I like that answer. I think that answer is exceedingly representative of how most people kind of view it, especially if most of your view of it kind of just comes from like movies, TV and internet memes all of which love to shit on CrossFit and that and I'm and to wit there's there's legitimate reasons to shit on CrossFit don't get me wrong but I'm going to parse this out okay. so um let me ask you before you did you read the definition I wrote you I before did not. you answered that okay cool so I am going to go ahead and try and define CrossFit so that we're working off of the same page here okay and then and then get into this discussion so the term CrossFit actually refers to a few different things. It is actually a brand and company um, started by coach and entrepreneur Greg Glassman back in 2000. Um, so there is a CrossFit LLC that is a proper incorporated company. It is a com- also a competitive sport where athletes compete in various different events all of which are borrowed from or inspired by um, different different other sports, ranging from Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting, strongman, gymnastics, track and field, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, have you ever heard of the CrossFit Games, Andy? I have not, no. Okay, so the CrossFit Games are like the, you know, world championships for CrossFit And, I mean, the basic premise behind it is for several days you have all these athletes and they show up at these games not knowing what they're going to have to do. If you go to the Highland Games, they know what their competitions are. There's the hay bale toss, there's the log hold, there's all this stuff. Same thing with um, powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting. You know, know I'm going to go in and snatch and clean and jerk. I know I'm going to be doing, you know, squat, bench, deadlift, gymnastics events. People know that there's the balance beam and there's this, that, and the other. With CrossFit, with the games, people show up and they it could be, okay, you're going to have to, you know, do a max clean and jerk over here. He thinks dynamic tension must be hard work. And then, 10, and then after that event is over, you're going to have to do 20 rope climbs up this 100-foot rope and do jumping jacks at the bottom for time or something like that. Like, you have no idea what the events are going to be. You're kind of just supposed to train for whatever it could possibly be. If I could just say real quick, that sounds, and I'm not, this is not for me and not for the kind of person I am, a.k.a. an unfit one, but that sounds 
patently awful. <laughs> There's a reason I have never done it, my friend. <laughs> it's also a big reason why it appeals to, like, firefighters. Sure. There's a lot of firefighters and military people who love CrossFit because the whole point of the training for it is you're ready for anything. Mm, okay. So it's a competitive sport, um, which is like the CrossFit games are straight up on one of the ESPNs. I'm not sure which one. Like it is it is a thing that people compete in. Um, and then finally, CrossFit is also a physical exercise philosophy. It's, you know... It's the training modalities you need in order to compete in something like the CrossFit Games. It's you become a jack of all trades method of program, or you do a jack of all trades method of programming, where you know all of the various stuff that I was just talking about. You you essentially create workouts of the day or wads. Yes, it's terrible. Um, d- that are designed to expose the participants to this wide array of exercise exercises usually but not always done for time and at a high cardiovascular threshold okay so when i'm training weightlifting i literally i'm walking into the gym and i'm like okay my i'm going to do you know snatches at this percentage of my one rep max i'm going to do like five of those i'm going to warm up to five of those then i'm going to do back squats at this percentage of my one rep max. I'm going to do like three sets of five of those at 80%. Uh, Then I'm going to do pull-ups and then like cool down and I'm done for the day. Like that's a session for me. For CrossFitters, you walk in and just like with the games, it's like, okay, you're going to have to do like throw this 20-pound ball, uh, 20-pound rubber ball. You're going to have to heave it so that it bounces against a wall catch it, put it down, do a burpee, and then do it again. Do 20 of those, do five sets of 20 of those for time as quickly as you can. And that could be a wad for a day. And then you come in the next day and then it's like, okay, do max push-ups, then do these, then do this gymnastic ring work, uh, and then finish off with rowing and do, do a circuit of those three things as much as you can in 20 minutes. Like, it's always it's always different or sure. or or you could literally walk in and it could be okay you're going to run a mile and a half and that's it for the day you never know what it's going to be again the idea being cross training training in as many different things as possible you're never going to be the best at any of them but the idea being with exposure of all of them you could be as well rounded as possible so though when people talk about crossfit they can be talking about any of those kind of three things, the company, the competitive sport, or just the philosophy of training. Sure. Starting from, well, any questions before I get into this? Uh, no, no questions. I mean, I I understand it more, and I understand the appeal aspect to it. You know, uh, a few minutes ago, you mentioned that, like, this... This very much appeals to like firefighters and people who want to have a sense of preparedness. And it's like, okay, then I, I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's understandable for that. I'm talking specifically about people who have kind of bullshit hate on CrossFit. Sure. I, I do want to state before I get into that, that I, I have some legitimate criticisms of CrossFit. Um, it catches a lot of shit, and some of that is well-deserved. 
Um, for instance, with the corporate structure of CrossFit, a lot of the affiliates you just mentioned, the three gyms that are within driving distance of you that have popped up in the last three years, um, a lot of them are ridiculously priced. There is a CrossFit gym around the corner from me that I have honestly looked into, not because I care to do CrossFit, but because they have weightlifting equipment. Sure. And I'm like, cool, I would love to be able to use like better weightlifting equipment than what's available at my little Anytime Fitness gym. But it is like the cheapest membership is four or five times what I pay a month at my regular little like chain gym. And it is frequently difficult for me to figure out why, because once you have all of the equipment for it, you're really just paying for trainers. And I've never understood why it is so fucking expensive. And that's across the board. It's a regular criticism of it. It is not the kind of thing that just anybody can walk in and potentially do. There is also a culture in it of doing kind of way too much. The unofficial mascot of CrossFit is Pukey the Clown. <laughs> so named because it is not terribly uncommon for people, especially people just starting out in CrossFit, to go so hard during the wads that they finish off by throwing up. It's considered a pretty normal occurrence. And I think you're answering your own question there. Like it, it becomes a clout thing. It becomes a reputational social merit badge for these people, not only having the money to spend on that activity, but also to be the kind of fit alpha that willingly puts themselves through it until they are excelling. Yeah. And, and you know, the thing is for some people, for some people being competitive is good for them. Like it motivates them. Like I, I've never been a competitive person, generally speaking, but I've talked to people who go to like, spin classes which are fine nothing against spin classes i've been to a spin class and when i went to the spin class i was like how am i going to survive this spin class <laughs> the friends who brought me to the spin class and were like you should try spin it's great were like looking at the people next to them and trying to like outdo them because they're competitive minded like that with crossfit there's literally a board at the front where it's like People, which is like a leaderboard. Sure. For people. And for some people, a leaderboard is all they need to get all the motivation they require. The problem is when that gets out of hand. Now, um, I will mention some of that does come down to the individuals involved. I I do think that you can't necessarily... Along with this, CrossFit does also make room for like, hey... If you're not at the place where you can do the wall balls with the 20-pound ball, we also have these five-pound balls available. Take your time. Build up. Learn to do this properly. Yeah. That is available, like, if they're doing it right. So I don't want to punish the—I don't want to shit on the entire culture for what some individuals do, but it is enough of a large-scale number of those individuals— 
that there have been some serious, serious problems that have arisen. Um, have you ever heard of a thing called Rabdo, Andy? Never, no. Okay, this was not in the notes, but Rabdo is um, trying to find the actual rhabdomyolysis is a breakdown of mus- muscle tissues that releases a damaging poisonous protein into your blood. Oh. Oh, Mr. DNA, where did you come from? From your blood. It is something that can only come through severe and extreme overuse of the muscles. Jesus. It's very rare in general populations. It is something that can occur sometimes with, say, professional athletes who aren't, you know, properly caring for themselves. And it has developed a reputation in and outside of CrossFit as being something of a CrossFit disease. Because there are people who do way too much CrossFit, get way too into it, whether because they're addicted to the endorphin high or they're too competitive or what, but who have developed this sometimes fatal muscular disease from overuse and under-recovery. Now, if you're programming smart and you're encouraging people to do it right, that doesn't really happen. And there's some personal-ish there to talk about. But the fact that the it's such a common thing that like you can read write-ups about rhabdo, about people doing CrossFit for a certain amount of time, complaining to their coaches, hey, I'm feeling this, 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 and they go you need to go to a hospital right now. It sounds like you have rhabdo. That's a problem. Sure. That's a problem. And the only, the the big other legitimate criticism that I do have about CrossFit, I, and again, I'm not trying to shit on CrossFit as a whole. I actually think CrossFit is fine. But if you go through the certification materials, as far as just teaching movements, some of the movements you're doing in a CrossFit gym can be very complex. They can be the things that, Olympic weightlifters and gymnasts and track and field people train to learn how to do properly. And if you're not well-trained on how to teach that stuff, you can legitimately hurt yourself. If you try a regular workout in CrossFit is called Fran. It is 30 snatches at 135 pounds for men, 95 pounds for women. A snatch is an Olympic weightlifting movement. It's a movement that I do multiple times a week. But I don't do 30 of them for time. I do 30 of them a week, probably. Mm. And it's not to say that there is a way to do this movement safely. But if you're doing, if you're trying to beat a time on it, you're more likely to get set up poorly, catch it poorly, fucking hurt yourself. That's a legitimate criticism I have. There are gymnastics moves that I see CrossFitters being taught where if you do it wrong, you can legitimately break an arm, break a leg, break your neck. And if you're taught well how to do it and with careful instruction, you'll be fine. There's no reason these things have to be limited to like professional gymnastics people. They don't. But when your certifications are shitty, when you've got people involved who get their level one CrossFit certifications and are suddenly teaching large classes of people how to do very complicated movements, that's something that needs to be accounted for. So all these are things that I legitimately am critical of CrossFit about. I don't do CrossFit. I don't, 
I've no, it doesn't interest me. It's not a thing that I've ever thought was like something that would catch me. And I have my concerns about it. That said, it catches a lot of hate from people who do the kinds of things that I do. People who do things like Olympic weightlifting, like powerlifting. And a lot of that I have felt is... On, it, on one hand, it's kind of what I've talked what I've mentioned before. It's a lot of people who maybe don't really want to give the benefit of the doubt to the larger organization or the philosophy, which has a lot of merit to it, despite some criticism. But they want to say CrossFit is just doing a bunch of movements with bad form and bad instruction in a warehouse. It's not. And I think that's an unfair criticism of it. I also think there's a lot of hate it gets because it's popular, like way more popular than the other sports ever were. Sure. Like, Andy, you didn't know a goddamn thing about Olympic weightlifting until we started doing this podcast and I just started talking about it all the time. That is true. And that's an Olympic sport. Now, granted, you also didn't know a whole ton about CrossFit. But there are more people who do CrossFit than do Olympic weightlifting. Membership in the CrossFit, like, like me- membership for CrossFit competitions is in the, like, I think 12 or 13,000. Membership for weightlifting internationally is at, like, 6,000. Still. It is a still, it, it has just zoomed past in terms of popularity. And I think that's the source of a lot of people just kind of being shitty about it. I, I think would, there absolutely is a jealousy factor. I, I would agree with that. You know, I'm trying to sit here and be like, okay, Zumba didn't do this. Spin class didn't do this. What's the thing that made this something more than like a staple exercise thing that goes on Tuesday mornings at the YMCA and I think really it is that like cult of personality that has become linked to the activity itself I um, I knew a guy wasn't really friends with them but I knew a guy who was super big into CrossFit to the point where he moved across the country to open a gym in Michigan. And this same guy would lift weights regularly and his wife would lift weights regularly. And this guy and his wife got into a fight because she wanted to stop lifting as hard when she got pregnant and he wasn't cool with that. And this guy was an asshole for that reason, I think. Sure. But this was also like this. This was the one guy I knew who would consistently talk about CrossFit and made it his career. And I think I think a lot of where I'm coming from with this is that guy sounds like a prat and a dick and an asshole. And I don't think he's indicative. A, I don't think he's indicative of all of CrossFit. Sure. And. B, I think a lot of the people, I think I think there are a lot of people who will look at that guy and say, that's what CrossFit does to people, rather than that's what happens when assholes do CrossFit. Does can, that make sense as a difference? Yeah, I can jive with that. Yeah. I, I think that 
I don't I think there are a lot of people who don't understand what CrossFit is. I really do. And I've read a lot about CrossFit because when I first discovered it, I was like, this sounds fascinating and I want to learn more about it. Maybe it's something I might want to do. After learning about it, I realized, no, this is absolutely not something I want to do. It's not something that interests me. Honestly, I hate cardio a little too much to ever do CrossFit, really. <laughs> um, I, re- I do. I, I just, but, mm. It's my least favorite thing I do in training. Mm-hmm. If I could get away with just lifting weights and stretching, I would. Problem is, when I do that, I just basically, I'm very bendy, but I also, like, can't hike for shit. Can't take a long walk for shit. I need some cardio. So that's that's me eating my greens, basically, when I do cardio. Sure. I could, I could not do CrossFit largely for that reason. But as far as the exercise philosophy goes, it's a sound philosophy. It's a philosophy of just do a whole... It's the same philosophy that track and field, like the decathlon had. You know, I, I, I don't know how much you know about track and field, Andy. Um... But the decathlon is like 10 events. I know there's like a javelin throw. There's a run in there. There, there it's, it's a number of things. But people used to argue that the decathlon was the... whoever wins, Whoever's winning in decathlon is probably the most well-rounded athlete overall at the Olympics. Because it's doing the most different things. Sure. CrossFit is just basically to me an extension of that it's saying okay let's take the conceit of the decathlon but add in you know less track and field stuff and more like body weight movements and calisthenics and barbell work and all of these other things that we have access to and we know about and i'm like that's fine you know like i've I've read the materials it's it's perfectly reasonable as long as it's done well, like anything else, it's it's a tool. It can be abused. It can be done incorrectly. There's certainly nothing. I, I, I've also read write-ups about people who've injured themselves doing yoga in severe extremes. You can hurt yourself doing anything. You can hurt yourself doing nothing. But I think that a lot of that criticism honestly comes from a lot of... People online who, A, don't understand anything about it, B, want to ascribe the worst of it to the worst of their people, and C, are maybe just a little jealous Sure, that this thing is popular, that it makes more money than, like, CrossFit makes more money than USA powerlifting, USA weightlifting, their international bodies, um, probably all of them except for U.S. track and field and USA Gymnastics, which actually legitimately get, like, Wheaties sponsorships. <laughs> sure. But I don't think USA track and field and USA Gymnastics are really that worried about CrossFit because they were already pretty up there. The fact that you can get college scholarships for it is has always been, like, it's just more mainstream and more of a thing. But weightlifting and powerlifting never really has been that popular. And a lot of that is the most vocal. A lot of those are the most vocal critics of CrossFit. And it's hating. It's just hating because they're jealous. I'm sorry. I'm like, just let like ripped people who love who love to do cardio for some reason do their shit and leave them alone. It's 
I don't think this is old man yelling at cloud. No. I think this is just like tired, tired weightlifter going, just leave him the fuck alone. It's fine, you guys. Magic! Nobody needs to care. Yeah, I think it's much more that style of thing. And I mean, this really does remind me of our Nickelback episode where it's just like, yeah, like this is a thing that has become trendy to roll your eyes at and hate if you're not in the actual group that does it. And at the end of the day, I mean, there are so many things that don't hurt an individual that the individual hates and rolls their eyes at. I've, I've been to the YMCA at five 30 in the morning and the parking lot is full. I'm there because I need to like do a shoot for the YMCA. Everyone else is there because they're getting in their morning workout. And, you know, I've had thoughts before I have some coffee of just like these people when you're those people. So, and I don't hate you. (laughs) Yes, and also I'm not a dick about it. Right. Yeah, at the end of the day, like some of these people are like the uh, the jerk I mentioned who um, has some deeper-seated issues about what his wife's workout habits should be. But by and large, I mean, shit. I mean, these people and the people who are at the Y at 5.30 in the morning, they're all working on themselves and just doing work, doing like, like getting their workout in and really I have no good reason to hate that. I I thank you for bringing this. It it makes me, I want to figure out how we can do some more of these because it is an interesting perspective to call out people that are just needlessly being shitty towards a thing when there, there really isn't that much reason to when you really break down the facts. Yeah, it's a it's a fun perspective, honestly, because I I there are a lot of things that I don't give a shit about, Andy. A lot of things. But I always find it weird to see people who give a huge shit about something just to shit on it. Yeah, I've never been that person. Or if I have been, it was one of the more toxic traits that I've tried to like purge out of myself. But yeah, the idea that hating on something a helps your pers- helps the thing that you love. And that's the weird tribalism thing that's existing in here with a lot of the critics Yeah. or B is just, I don't know, man, hating something's not a personality. And that comes from me who had the idea to start a podcast where we talk about hating something, but, (laughs) but no, no, it was always important to me that these hate discussions be productive, that they be about us uh, down to when I was writing, you know, the copy on our website for the explaining what this show is about. I always wanted the hates to be productive. They're, they're, they're not about us just, you know, being assholes about something. Except for occasionally if we want to be funny or something like that. But, right. you know, I keep I keep talking about the day that I'm going to do uh, a whole hate on coconut because I fucking hate coconut. <laughs> but but you know what? And here's the thing. If I do that, it'll be for comedy. It's not going to be because I think coconut should actually be eradicated from the world. Right. I don't give a shit about actually like any if anyone else wants to eat coconut. Fine. Just, you know, 
keep it off my food, you gross fucks. But like, but this kind of thing, hating on stuff where I go, this is legitimately not helping anyone. It's expending a lot of energy and it's making, it's, it's even distracting from the legitimate criticisms that I have for CrossFit. So if you actually cared about making like, if you actually cared about the people doing CrossFit, why don't you criticize it, you know, in an intelligent way rather than being a shithole about it? It's it's trying to be productive in talking about these hate topics and calling out people who hate needlessly sounds productive to me. Yeah, I can dig it. On that note, um, shall we move on to uh, our question? Absolutely. And this one comes to us from relationships.txt. And I'm going to ask you to read it because, frankly, it makes my head spin. Okay. Uh, This is slightly longer, so uh, buckle in, folks. But here we go. Title is uh, 27-year-old male uh, and his 26-year-old wife. Uh, My wife of two years agreed to have separate finances, but now she wants to go on my insurance plan. Strap in. We've been together for seven years, married for two. I knew that finances are usually probably one of the biggest reasons that relationships fail, so during the engagement, we made a point of it to iron out what our finances would look like under certain outcomes, our views on children more specifically than the I don't want them thing uh, we had when we were just dating, what we would do financially if we both decided otherwise, etc. It was good to have these things set out then. We both got lawyers and drafted a prenup, and I thought we were on a good footing then. We agreed that we would have separate finances and contribute proportionally to joint expenses like utilities, mortgage, grocery bills, etc. For small things like gym memberships, Netflix, cell phones, etc., we're on the same plan and pay proportionally, but we agreed that major financial things like cars, health insurance, and taxes would be separate. That had worked for us for a year and a half, but I feel like our agreement is now dying a death by a thousand cuts. Firstly, we had always agreed on a fixed payment responsibility, directly proportional to our own earnings, but she argued that we change it eight months ago. When we were engaged, we agreed our responsibilities were 70-30, 97K for the husband, 45K a year for the wife, uh, and would stay fixed to the proportion of our earnings. But she argued eight months ago that even though our income is 72-28, 180K versus 70K, it hurts her a lot more than it does me to contribute, so it should be 80-20. This didn't matter much to me at the time, and it's technically true that paying bills doesn't hurt me as much relatively, but it's been sort of the first stone in eroding the way we agreed to split finances. This year, she argued that we should file our taxes jointly. I was pretty against this as that was one of the things we explicitly agreed to do separately, but to her, it was impractical not to, since we would both be losing out on a modestly large amount with no real benefits. Even though I wasn't for it, it was hard to argue for losing out on the amount we lost uh, by filing separately without any quote-unquote real benefit. So I agreed to do our taxes that way this year. And now it's health insurance, with a similar argument basically. She has to drive an hour to see specialists to take the plan her employer provides while I don't have those problems. It would actually cost less to add her to my plan, etc. Again, it's technically true that my health insurance is a lot better than hers and wouldn't cost more than we pay in total, but I feel like pretty soon we aren't even going to have separate finances. I'm having difficulty expressing my point to her since it's not necessarily practical, but I feel the principle is worth defending, even if it's not the path of least resistance. 
Of course, to her, it's silly to pay more because of quote-unquote ego, but I think it's worth having the discipline not to abandon an agreement the second it becomes impractical. In our discussions, I'm having a hard time defending my point since I can't point to any concrete benefits, but intuitively, I think the point is worth defending still. I'm having a lot of difficulty with communicating my point to her rationally, and it comes out sort of petty. How can I more effectively point out that it's important that we keep the commitments we've made, even if they aren't necessarily the most optimal? How do I stand up for my side without coming off as petty? <sighs> so, want to start? Well, so first we got to give a name. Oh yeah. Why do I always forget? That? <laughs> um, I don't know. Okay. Um, do you have any ideas off the bat? I'm. I'm... <laughs> Without giving away my answer, I'm trying to think if there are any famous insurance pedants in uh, popular media. Seems like a pretty (laughs) hyper-specific one. Insurance. I mean... This was marketing. Okay, you're not not a Gilmore Girls fan, but Richard Gilmore, played by the fantastic Ed Herman, is an insurance adjuster. I was going to go with Don Draper with the caveat that I know that's marketing. So I like Richard Gilmore more for this instance. All right. So we've got Richard, which means the wife is Emily. Um, I love this. Again, I don't know how much Gilmore Girls you've seen, but I love the show. So this makes me happy. Sidebar, the closest thing I've seen to an episode of Gilmore Girls is I know Alexis Bledel is in Sin City, but she plays a hooker. So (laughs) you've seen Lost Boys, though, haven't you? I have not actually seen Lost Boys. Oh, we need to rectify this. I know. Anyway, uh, so we've got Richard and Emily here. Oh, this is my favorite thing to eat as a boy. My gran used to make this for me whenever I was feeling a little sad. You know, if my cricket team lost or a girl I fancied turned up her nose at me. Again, I asked, do you want to start? Yeah, because I don't know if this is going to be a complete different take than what you've got but so hi richard you came to us with a a question how can you make your point without like be how, how can you how can you more effectively point out that it's important to keep your commitments even if they aren't necessarily the most optimal you don't want to come across as petty i really gotta question why that matters because I am on Emily Gilmore's side of this one. A hundred percent personally, like my wife and I have always like, as as soon as we were married, it was a tacit agreement that, okay, we have one financial pool that we both add to, and we have filed jointly for as many years as that has been possible. I am pragmatic to a fault so whatever just truly makes the most sense is the thing i go for um you know you mentioned how like your wife brought up the point of wanting to file jointly in order to not lose money that you otherwise would lose and you conceded the point that it was kind of needless to just throw that away i i respect the fact that you guys got married and laid out the, this groundwork to, you know, keep stuff separate in that regard. And and you're trying to hold on to that, but it seems like you're, 
you just want to do it because you said that was how you were going to do. And I've had, I've had things like that, you know, where it's just like, I, I want to do this. We said we were going to do this. I don't see any reason to back down from this, but after a point, like I just let the pragmatism win and it seems like it would really help your wife to be led on to your insurance plan. And I mean, really like this is your wife. This is your, your, your partner, your person ostensibly you got married and, and you know, you both signed prenups and that is, I, I really think kind of neither here nor there, but you know, you married this person with the expectation that you would stay together. And I just really question why it is such a big deal if it is helping your partner. And Alex, I want I want to hear if you've just got a completely different take than me. I don't have a totally different take. I will answer Richard's question directly. Um, if there's a way to do this without sounding petty, and the answer is potentially, and it's coming at it from the perspective of being vulnerable about it and saying, listen, I am extremely uncomfortable with the idea that we made this agreement. This agreement has always been in place, and I feel like the this agreement is backsliding and connecting it to whatever deeper emotions are here. You seem to care a lot, Richard, about maintaining the agreements you guys did at the beginning of this. Trust me, I totally understand being like, well, it's the principle of the thing. If you have any idea how many times I have shot myself in the foot, <laughs> practically speaking, because I have to sit here and be like, well, it's the principle. It's the ethical thing. It's the correct thing. It's the right thing. I would be in such a better place if I could just let that go. And I work on it, but it is a thing for me. So I get where you're coming from. If this really matters to you that much... That is a conversation that's worth happening, that's that's worth having, where you lay down, listen, I am terrified of this. You have made some compromises. It's possible the health insurance could be another compromise, but you can't just not articulate those compromises and and or those lines, you know. This this is currently a practical thing. Now it could be that Maybe you agree as soon as something changes, whether that's your job, her job, anything else. Maybe you go back to having separate health insurances, but it's the thing you do for right now. I'm with Emily on the and Andy on the tax thing. I'm like, file file your taxes however saves you the most money, motherfucker. Um, <laughs> and it's worth stating, um, Andy, when they got married... They were clearing a hundred and forty something thousand dollars, and they are now clearing two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. True. With all due respect, Richard, your finance like it sounds. I, I don't know how your lifestyle is. Um, you you have not mentioned that you have kids. Just that kids were part of your prenup, but a. You make way more than she does. And B, it's... There are going to be things you guys can afford to do differently. And 
maybe it's a good space to bring up compromises where, say, you say, you can go on my health insurance, but I want X, Y, and Z back so that we can maintain this financial separation. So in practical terms, that's the way to present it. You you are not petty if you, A, communicate the importance of the principle, B, communicate your vulnerable insecurities, and C, try and find practical compromises and make future plans on all of this. That answers your question directly. That said, I am ideologically with ideologically with Andy on this one and with Emily. I think that you guys entered into this prenuptial agreement and and entered into this conceit of your finances by saying, well, if we have separate finances, then we won't have problems about money and money won't be the thing that wrecks our relationship. And look where you are now. Yeah. I uh... Your prenup was not a solution. Right. And I mean, I'm I'm trying to think of something constructive I can say other than just like I I really am having trouble understanding Richard's point of view here. I like your idea of maybe just a complete restructuring because I mean even in my own relationship I get it. I I talked about how we have, you know, one financial pool, but it's basically we've we've got it split in a certain way of somebody pays the rent, the other person pays the utilities and bills. We both pay our like we we each pay our own student loans. Like I understand having a a separation and how sometimes that can at least be comforting from a stability standpoint. But like really aside from totally restructuring your finances and who's who pays what you put her on her health on your health insurance. So she pays for something else, you know, maybe she pays both of your phone plans as a, as an agreement for that. You can, I encourage you, Richard, to have the conversation of just exploring and admitting to your wife why it bothers you so much that we said we would do this and it feels like you are consciously wanting to do the other thing now. You know, maybe you can get some perspective on how her opinion has changed or if it has changed and, and maybe she was agreeing to do this because she loves you, but it was not going to be the way that she saw the relationship working financially. You can do these things. It, it, it doesn't mean you're petty. It, it can be an avenue to craft a, or, or strengthen the bond you already have with your wife. That said, I, I really fall on the, like, this is your wife do the things that are going to help her because I feel like if there's anybody on this earth, you're going to do those things for aside from your hypothetical children, it would be your wife. So I, I go ahead. I, I, I'm just going to say this. Um, I have been with my partner for closing in on 12 years. And we have been married for not quite half of that yet. Little little shy of half of that time. And something I have picked up 
over those years were I, I am very much a it, I, I'm not even sp- talking specifically about finances. I'm talking about like interactions, likes and dislikes, expectations. There are large chunks of my early relationship with Stephanie where I where she was like, okay, I like this, I want this, I don't like this. X, Y, and Z. And I'm my weird little computer brain goes, okay, those are things that I understand. I'm I am expected to do this. This is how I communicate in like this kind of a fight. These are things that I don't do in uh, on certain holidays that mean something to her. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And over the course of 12 years, some of those things have changed. Her opinion of them has changed. Her desires of them have changed. And she has had, she and I have had to have communications or we, we've had to have conversations where we go, all right, that thing that I said that I hated when I was 19, now that I'm 27, it doesn't really apply anymore. X, Y, and Z. And the same thing has happened on my end. You guys have been together seven years and you've been married for two. You're telling me, and, and, and you motherfuckers are 27 and 26. <laughs> you are telling me that everything, everything you agreed to when you were 26, and tw- or I'm sorry, when you were 25 and 24 is going to apply in exactly the same way when you are actual Richard and Emily Gilmore ages in your fucking 70s? Come on, man. Like, finances, even if you separate them, even if you say from the beginning, we'll have separate finances. That way we never fight about finances. You're still going to fight about fucking finances. It doesn't matter. All you did was kick the can down the road about the conversation. Yeah. So there, there are compromises and solutions for this situation that you are in right now, Richard. There are. And they are band-aids on the deeper problems that you two need to learn how to fucking talk about money. Because it honestly sounds like you just went, oh, we'll put in our prenup that we'll have separate finances. This is, these are the proportions. These are the things. There, we fixed it. We fixed the problem of finances in marriage before we were even married. You're smarter than that. Yeah, that's a very 20-year-old thing to think you figured out. <laughs> Ex- exactly. And, and, you know, you two met when you were pretty young. You were 20 and 19. It's, it's, it's sweet. It's nice. You're very young right now. You're still practically newlyweds. And you got to get mature about this. Especially because you're, the jump in, the jump in finances you guys had between when you got married, where it was 97K and 45K, and now it's 180K and 70K. Frankly, y'all have more than enough money. And you're gonna be needing to have conversations about that because it is easier to have more money than less money, but it is easier to be stupid with more money than it is with less money. So work on it, Richard. That's all I have to say. Sure. No, I, I absolutely agree, man. And I think, did I yell at Richard too much? Well, I mean, it helps that it helps that Richard is somebody on Reddit. I don't think we yelled at Richard too much. I think sometimes the answer to the questions we get really is, thank you so much for asking this. You need to change some of the things in your head on this issue. I think this is one of them. Um, This was also, I think, the first like deeply financial-based question we got. So that was certainly 
uh, a milestone for us. If you have a relationship question, financial based or otherwise, and you want our perfectly unqualified advice and you are open to maybe us telling you, Hey buddy, thank you so much for uh, asking this, but here's, our, our answer means you're going to have to work on some stuff too. Uh, you can send those questions into love, hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. Yeah, we will. You can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even tune in radio. Hey mom, I hope I've gotten the tune in thing fixed by the time you hear this. Cause <laughs> you said you weren't getting them. Oh no. Uh, and you are the only listener we have on tune in radio. So love you. Uh, we would also love it if you reviewed us on any or all of those. And you can tweet us at LHRpod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions. And uh, follow us there to keep up with your new episodes. That's right. Um, you know, I also do a cult movie podcast with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson called Cult Fiction. Yeah. You can find it on Twitter or go to uh, cultfictioncast.com. And you can find me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter at JoVocop2113. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. That's for all of you who are not related to me and want to follow me there. Uh, Thanks for listening, y'all. As always, please tell your enemies.